what is going on here? We are, and you know, you think that the government is going to step up, and then at a certain point, it's just about people stepping up. It's about people doing what you can, following your own ethical compass, because your government isn't. So for me, I feel very strongly that each one of us has something we can do. Welcome to Cambridge Forum from Harvard Square. I'm Mary Stack, the director of Cambridge Forum, and tonight's topic for discussion, migrating to prison, America's obsession with locking up immigrants. This is the subject of a new book by Cesar Garcia Hernandez. For much of America's history, we simply didn't lock people up for migrating here. Yet over the last 30 years, federal and state governments have increasingly tapped their powers to incarcerate people accused of violating immigration law. As a result, 400,000 people a year are now spending time locked up pending civil or criminal immigration proceedings. That's a lot of people. Cesar Garcia Hernandez is a professor of law at the University of Denver and an immigration lawyer. In his new book, he takes a hard look at the immigration prison's system's origin how it currently operates, and why. He tackles the growing and lucrative private prison industry and criticizes those on the political right who continue disingenuously to link immigration imprisonment with national security risk and threats to the rule of law. We're now going to have a panel discussion which you're welcome to involve yourselves with. So I'm going to introduce Leslie Detraney, She's a managing partner and business immigration attorney. Denise Bell, who's a researcher for refugee and migrant rights from Amnesty International. Greta Bro, who's a co-founder of Vosses Arts and Healing. She's a psychotherapist and a musician, and she goes to the border regularly to give supplies and to take therapy down to the children in the camps at the border. Okay, so what's the panel's uh, kind of response to the general idea of, well, you know, this has got nothing to do with me, this is all going on at the border, why should I care about this, I'm okay. What's your individual responses to that comment? For me, it's a, as a therapist, I feel it's a, it, we're in the midst of incredible ethical uh, deterioration as a country and it ripples out in a way among us that um, I think it's a psycho-spiritual crisis. So for me, when I, I have a Jewish uncle, I mean he's passed, but I have Jewish relatives, I have Jewish nieces, I have Jewish godchildren, and I am thinking, wait a second here, this is Auschwitz. What is going on here? We are, and you know, you think that the government is going to step up, and then at a certain point, it's just about people stepping up. It's about people doing what you can, following your own ethical compass, because your government isn't. So for me, I feel very strongly that each one of us has something we can do. You know, it isn't a matter of waiting for your government, although I do believe that we set a tone in the world, but I think that also we're seeing the shadow xenophobia. I think that, you know, what happened in the El Paso shooting uh, at Walmart, where somebody after hearing Trump's speech goes and, and shoots 22 Mexican-Americans um, because they are invading the country. They are coming to take our jobs. This is 
crap. Excuse me, but you know, I feel that there's, uh, we are in the midst of a lot of crazy propaganda and hysteria, and we have to. And for me, it's about doing what you can. For me, I called up my friend Mitchell Kosick, Stan Strickland. I said, we got to send a bunch of psychotherapists and expressive therapists to ICE, but you know, ICE didn't open the doors, and this was first, let's go to Florida and go to ICE down there, and let's infiltrate with, with energy and compassion and love. But, you know, Mexico opened their doors. They said, come in. They said, help us. And so we started to go into Ciudad Juarez and work with some of the immigrants there in the shelters. And, and the thing about the immigrants is what they have suffered is unspeakable. It is the same as what went on in Nazi Germany. It is. I mean, you can, we can try to hide from that, but this is the US, and I feel like there is something going on here in terms of these prison camps. You know, this is so disgusting and disturbing. So anyway, we went down there. We're going into these places, and we're bringing in the resilience that's in the children and the community, and we, we're only bringing love. We don't really have answers. All we're trying to do is bring compassion. We come in there, they have their own cultural resilience. They have their own traditions. We're just in a couple of the children, one, one woman said to me in Spanish, you care, you care. And I'm like, we're trying, <laughs> you know, we are, this, this is another side of America. There is compassion here. So for me, it's a compassionate culture. I would call it, you know, it's a compassionate revolution that has to happen, has to happen now, has to happen now. And you know, politics is one thing and people doing what they can is another and stepping up. And there's all so many ways you can get involved and, and speak up and protest. And I could go on, okay. okay. <laughs> Thank you, Greta. I'd like to step back and bring in the global human rights framework, and that is the bigger question here. It's not just about the United States. The United States is part of an international community, a global community that agreed to adhere to certain principles and obligations after World War II that are grounded in human rights and refugee protection, from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights to the Refugee Convention, and the U.S., for all of its flaws, <laughs> um, this is not a new problem. It's an existing problem of immigration detention, um, violations against the rights of people seeking safety. It's accelerated under this administration. But until this time, the U.S. had a sort of moral authority and actually led in terms of what we call refugee protection, and that would be settling the most number of refugees in the world, bringing them from host countries to the US, to abiding by the rule of law in the US, which is the right to seek asylum. And I'd just like to put that in context. The US signed and ratified the Refugee Convention, and it took that convention, international human rights law, broadly speaking, and made it US law in 1980 with the Refugee Act. And so think how important that commitment to refugee protection is, we took international human rights law, the right to seek asylum, and we made it US law. And we have been a leader, and now we have stepped back. And since we have abdicated our leadership, that has created an opening for the rest of the world to say, why should we, if there's nobody else who's going to follow the rule of law, 
international standards like the US. And that goes from resettling refugees to turning away people seeking safety at the border, putting them in arbitrary and indefinite detention, including families. And we see this ripple effect around the world. We see it in Europe. We see it in Australia, which offshores families, asylum seekers, refugees, who are medically ill indefinitely. And they cannot leave an island. They cannot get to the mainland. The other thing is that this has a corrosive effect on the fabric of society. We turn away from one another. There's a rise in xenophobia and nationalism. And we see it here, but it's not just here. It ripples out. I'm not saying that that rise began here. But when we have stepped back in our leadership, it's accelerated. And so there truly is a time where we need to reassert our leadership because the international system of refugee protection is crumbling. And we are accelerating that. Um, I really want to open it up to people on the floor to come up to the microphone. If you have a question, please. Um, the, the impression I get is that most people, um, myself included, don't, don't really know the full extent of the kinds of abuses that take place uh, by ICE and Border Patrol and in their facilities or just in their um, regular sort of operations. Um, do you think that we'll ever know the full extent of the kind of damage that, that they have done? And to what extent um, do you think we can hold people um, or, or, or institutions accountable for, for these abuses? You want to take it, Denise, first? OK, I'll take it first. So um, I work for Amnesty International. And one thing that we do is we document, we research, and we document the, these types of violations. And um, I have had the opportunity to visit many of the facilities, actually, also ones that hold unaccompanied children. And we've published reports on those. Most recently, over the summer, one on the Homestead facility detaining unaccompanied children. Uh, but we've also published other reports. Um, and what we've documented is that, first, it's unlawful under international law because they're holding um, children, adults, uh, people seeking safety, migrants, people who are present in this country, in arbitrary, prolonged, and indefinite detention. But what we've also documented, and we are not alone, um, the long-lasting trauma that are inflicted, even when um, children, for example, are detained just for a very short period of time. And so the government has also documented this through um, inspector general reports and other mechanisms. And again and again, DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, or the Department of Justice, or the executive branch refuse to act. And the only way that they do respond is when there is enough public pressure. And that public pressure comes out because the media disseminates it, because we raise our voice and we educate one another, and we target our elected officials, but we also target the corporations that go or behind it. It's going to be very, very hard because there is uh, a detention prison complex going on here, and Geo Group and Core Civic are not going to give up. But we can bring a cost to bear. So it has to be in tandem. Always, we elect our officials, and they do respond. But go follow the money. Uh, I'd like to ask a question, which may be a little too broad. 
but uh, given that we live in a world that is rife with geopolitical divisions, what would be a compassionate and humane immigration policy? I'd like to say something, um, and not that I can address what that policy would look like, but I can say it on a very human level. Um, when you, uh, you know, and if you want to learn about what's happening or what has happened, for example, in El Paso and Juarez, you should watch the WGBH uh, Frontline Special targeting, targeting El Paso. And it's online and you can watch it. This is very informative. But what happens to children when they are experiencing compounded trauma because they're crossing, they're crossing a whole country, Mexico, and, and then they're often being exploited or, or, or almost completely being exploited by coyotes who are transporting them across the country and these people are extorting them and also killing people right in front of them. Like if a farmhouse doesn't open up, they could kill the farm owner. And then now they have witnessed that and that so they are constantly at risk. And then the, the cartel, have, the Mexican cartel and other cartels have a target on their back to extort their families in the US and, in, and back in Honduras or El Salvador or Guatemala. So for me, it begins with compassion. You know, these are, there has to be a way in which we understand and psychologists need to be involved that these children, when they're going through this and, and the adults, there's compounded trauma. So you cannot put these children on cold floors in these facilities in the United States when they are already experiencing incredible stress hormones, fight, fight, and, and freeze. So, and then they start to stop being able to learn and grow and they have physical symptoms. So I, it begins with take care of the children and the families and never, you know, we have to create, if we're going to have any kind of system, and I'll let the lawyers talk to this, but that it, it has to begin with caring about the quality of their experience after they've been through so much. Where is American compassion? I think if we decide that we're gonna lock up people, we'll find the reason. Right now, the two reasons that the courts give us, that the law give us are, keep people from endangering others, so promote public safety, or to make sure that folks show up for court dates. Well, if what we want to do is promote those two goals. We can do that without locking up people. We've got pilot projects going back to the Reagan years in which sometimes the government, oftentimes NGOs, have provided support services to people who are going through the immigration court process including people with criminal histories, including people who are applying for asylum, including people who have very limited ties to the United States. Um, and, and, and time and time again, those have had remarkably high success rates. I write about this uh, toward the, in, uh, the last chapter of, of the book. And what that entails is you provide legal services. So right now in the ICE, ICE's detention network, the majority of people who are going through the, court, the immigration court process while they're locked up by ICE don't have access to a lawyer, right? That means that assures you an outcome, but not a particularly legitimate outcome, right? Um, so you provide people with lawyers, but don't stop there. Provide people with social workers, therapists, folks who are gonna be able to inject some amount of stability into the lives of folks who are going through what is inherently a high stress, highly stressful process. Provide case managers, folks who are gonna be able to make sure that you know where, you gotta, where you've gotta be, when you've gotta be there, and how, you, how you're gonna get there, whether that's bus fare or a ride, 
Do you have childcare? Right? These are some, some of these are really yeah. basic issues that are enormous obstacles in the lives of ordinary people like all, all of us. But when the stakes are your ability to live with your family, your ability to live in safety or not, I think we need to take that money that we're currently spending mm -hmm. on steel doors and barbed wire and, and, mm -hmm. and reposition it toward supporting the humans, but also supporting the legitimacy of the legal process that is supposed to be determining who gets to be in the US and who doesn't. I just wanted to um, ask a question. Um, we were talking about this earlier, Leslie. Um, when people say this is just a border issue, it's a great deal more than that because it's not just Mexicans, people south of the border that are being targeted. And, and you're working with some of that, aren't you, Leslie? Yeah. I don't believe it's just an attack on the southern border of our country. I think if you look kind of more globally at what's happening in the United States with immigration law, um, you'll, you'll see a systematic erosion of the ability for people to come into the United States legally. And um, you know, for business immigration, it, it came in under um, Buy American, Hire America. Anyone here with that executive order? It got like no press, right? It's not the travel ban. It, it didn't, you know. Can you explain when that was? It was April of 2017. And it directed the federal government to look internally on what it could do to promote hiring Americans. And every department with our, our government stopped and did that. And they slowly, over time, started issuing memos to enact it. And I mean, it's, it's silly, some of them. Like, you know, there's a memo that went out from the Immigration Service um, revoking deference. If the government, if the Immigration Service has made a decision and you are applying for the same benefit three years later with absolutely no change, they are not giving deference anymore to that decision. So we work with employers who have hired people for years and years and years, and all of a sudden their visas aren't being renewed. Or visas that were issued regularly, there was a approval rating three years ago of 94%. Now we're down to 75%. So employers can't, can't hire foreign workers with any kind of regularity because they are unsure of what's going to happen. And it's not a matter of, well, gee, they'll hire an American because they would if there was one available. I mean, employers turn to foreign workers because there are not enough US workers for the jobs that are there. So we are just shooting ourselves in the foot and that we're not allowing our systems to work so we can fuel our economy. So um, my question is about uh, statewide change, particularly in Massachusetts. So right now, obviously, we allow the 287G contracts with ICE. Um, but we have seen some counties ending those agreements, um, which I think inherently sounds like a very good thing. But I've seen some immigration lawyers talking about how that pulls their clients out of state um, and how that really hurts them from you know, no longer having contact with their communities and not being able to be in the same jurisdiction. And so I guess my question is, how, how are you all thinking about the balance of making these big systemic changes, but also the impact that that has on individuals in, in their lives in the moment? I live in Cambridge, and we're a sanctuary city, right. which I thought was great until I heard more about it. 
Um, sanctuary city is not defined anywhere. A sanctuary city is whatever the city determines it. And here in Cambridge, and our lovely city of Cambridge, it means that if there is a um, someone who is of interest in the immigration service, the police will get together and talk about whether they're going to share that information, and then may share it. It's not just this blanket, we will keep that information private, because it's private information. So I mean, there's very concerning things happening in our very own town. Something that I've been to similar events before, and and I think the previous person kind of alluded to that. But what is like a call to action, given your different backgrounds? What are what is something that you know people here can actually do to make change besides having empathy, besides reading your great book, like? what can we actually do to mobilize people? Because the election is coming up, and I feel like if we don't like get up and speak up and mobilize, nothing's going to change. Good point. Okay. So I will, I will start this is because this is part of my job, uh, mobilizing and educating the public. Uh, I will open at the back. There's a petition for people to sign. Uh, and right now, uh, it'll be this bill, the No Ban Act, will be coming up for a vote in the House of Representatives. It was just voted out of the House Judiciary Committee. And this bill would repeal the Muslim ban, the refugee ban, and the asylum ban, and address the animus behind them. There are a series of policies behind these bans, but this is what this um, act would do. And it's very, very important that our members of Congress hear from us so that the House passes it. Even if the Senate will not pass it, we need to be on record that we have power and that we want these anti-asylum, anti-refugee bans off the books. Secondly, in terms of the presidential cycle, um, Amnesty International is a 501c3. We are nonpartisan. We don't uh, support any political party. But what we are doing is uh, creating an election toolkit. And it's not around the election. It's about educating the public and our presidential candidates. Tomorrow, we are holding a forum in Nevada in which we've invited all the presidential candidates. And we're asking them about their views on immigration and the right to seek asylum. And that is the sort of action that we need. We will be live streaming it. If anyone contacts me after, I'll give you the information. It will also be on our website. But we will be calling to account anybody who is running for office to ask them to rescind these anti-asylum, anti-refugee hateful bills to get them on the record because we need to start building momentum so that people understand this is a vital conversation and our elected officials have to respond. And given the Harvard affiliation, I, I didn't catch whether student or, or staff or employee what was it, but um, you know, there's, a, there's a, a campaign at Harvard to push the university to divest from prisons. Just this morning, a group of students actually filed a lawsuit in um, a Massachusetts uh, a court, um, the goal being to try to force the, the, the university to divest its $40 billion endowment from the private prison industry. That's meaningful, potentially financially. We don't actually know how much they have invested in, in the industry. Um, but symbolically, this is an, a, a, an institution of enormous uh, symbolic weight, uh, not just in the United States, but, but, but globally. So get in touch with the activists who are part of the Harvard Prison Divestment 
uh, campaign. Um, they're your neighbors, maybe they're your classmates, maybe they're your coworkers, uh, but they're certainly in your community here. And on that note, I would even add to that, um, to divest from products and companies who support uh, this divisive uh, presidential administration, you know, companies who are investing in Trump don't, you know, um, there are all kinds of corporate sponsors that you could stop buying their products. That's one way to do it. Another way is to, uh, there's races, is R-A-I-C-E-S, is a wonderful group of um, I would say lawyers. What, what, I was going to say a nonprofit. A nonprofit who has incredible a, a group of lawyers who are primarily Latino, and they're in Texas. If you Google them, give your money to them. Give give money to Erica, who's sitting there. She runs their development work. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure she'll take cash. Yeah. I, <laughs> And there's and and we're says we're trying to bring our supplies and and pay for teachers while the kids are in limbo. There are a lot of teachers from Honduras who have fled Honduras, who are in these um, in in Ciudad Juarez that are there, um, and so we we're trying to pay their salaries so that they can continue teaching the children. So the children have something in these centers, and there are other projects. There's tons of them. Go online. Look at the projects you can support, and. Uh, you know, just divest from the companies that are corrupt and are you know, caught up. I just have to say one thing, that we destabilized Central America. U.S. did that. You know, we invested in power, our, in our whole communist paranoia phase. We invested in, in, in the powerful. We destabilized. We took presidents out, elected officials out. We went against the people's vote. You know, we did that since 1954. So we, I feel we have an obligation to the people of Central America to make that right. So anyway, uh, I, I feel very passionately about that. It, it's up to us to rectify that karma, you know, so to speak. And, um, and I think that right now, finding ways, and the human imagination is incredible. Come up with your own way. OK, we've got time for a couple more questions. Um, I think leading into that, what you were saying, my question is, how do you make sure that as white and white passing folks that you're not doing savior work, but you're centering leadership of those who are affected? Could you say that question again? Yep. So I was saying, how do you make sure that as white and white passing folks that you're not doing savior work, but you're centering leadership of those who are affected? Yes. For me, um, we are a multicultural, multiracial organization, who says Arts and Healing. And um, uh, I think it's a really important question. Uh, we're not going in to be colonists and saving it to, you know, for our own conscience. But there is that aspect of, of needing to respond as a privileged white American. I feel I need to respond. So, but our group is multiracial. <laughs> um, I went down to the border April last year and to Dilly. Um, and Dilly staffs a lot of its volunteers through um, law students. Um, and I, I know they make a point of being diverse in all aspects. Um, but then the experience is eye-opening. It, it doesn't. 
I, I hear your question. I see the importance of the question. But when you are faced with hundreds of people being detained, I think every person who can get down there and help is a valuable person to be down there and help because the need is great. I just want to thank everybody. Cesar is actually signing his book at the back for anyone who's interested. And uh, thank you all, Greta Bro, Denise Bell from Amnesty International, Leslie Dechani, Cesar, for this amazingly wonderful discussion. You've been listening to Migrating to Prison, America's obsession with locking up immigrants, with author, law professor, and immigration attorney, Cesar Garcia Hernandez. Cambridge Forum is made possible through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter. It is also sponsored by the Lowell Foundation, the Massachusetts Cultural Council, Harvard Bookstore, and First Parish Church in Cambridge. Thank you for joining us. Spread the word and visit us again. <laughs>